You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Before we get going, I just want to say that support for today's show comes from Squarespace. With beautiful templates created by world-class designers, Squarespace makes it easy for you to turn your idea into a new, unique website in just a few clicks. If you can think it, you can dream it, you can make it with Squarespace. I want you to go to squarespace.com and put an offer code LONGFORUM. You'll get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Here's the show. Hey, welcome to Long Forum, the Long Forum podcast, that is. It's not just Long Forum, Aaron. This is the Long Forum podcast. I'm here with Evan Ratliff from The Atavist. Hi, Evan. Hey, Aaron. Uh, Max is on assignment. He is. He's, uh, he's doing good work that uh, you'll you'll get to hear later. But so um, who's on the show this, this week? This week, it's a doubleheader, rare, two-person uh, episode. But I found, personally, I don't love to interview two people together. Uh, because there's this weird triangulation where they're both performing for the audience and for each other. So uh, I talked to the guys who do Reply All, which is a podcast um, that Gimlet Media puts out about internet culture. Uh, This episode is with one of the hosts, Alex Goldman. And if you look in your feed, you'll also see part two with the other host, PJ Vote. It's one of my favorite podcasts. It's unusual for people to do things like solving mysteries on the internet on a deadline. And they had a um, huge one recently. Huge one recently. Um, a big story about a call center scam. Uh, a lot of scam, a lot of scam stories. I guess you've covered the internet, you cover scams. Um, are you a listener, Evan? I am a listener, yes. Uh, I should say full disclosure, um, they helped look into something for uh, Max Linsky and I early on on the show. I recall that you made an appearance yeah, on we the made, show. Yeah, you can, you can hear us. I think we've actually popped up twice, but the other time was just a blip. Um, but this time we were trying to acquire longform.com and we felt like potentially we were in a bidding war with multiple people who might be the same person. And so we looked into that with Reply I'll put the put that in the show notes. There's no if, one better to solve that kind of mystery than Reply Absolutely, really. although we didn't actually solve the mystery. <laughs> This week, the show, as all weeks, is sponsored by MailChimp. They make it easy and fun to send emails for your business or project. Thank you, MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with Alex Goldman, the first of two parts of interviews with Reply All. Well, uh, welcome, Alex Goldman. 
Thanks for having me. I don't really know how you got into doing this kind of stuff. You're the host of Reply All show on uh, Gimlet, and that show was previously TLDR, which is at WNYC. WNYC. But um, what like what, what was your first gig in the world of making stories? So I got a journalism degree. I graduated in 2003, and then I lived various places around the country doing various kinds of non-journalistic work. Um, I worked at a vitamin shop. I worked at a record store. I was an IT guy for about five years in New York City. And the whole time I kept saying to myself I wanted to get back into journalism. And I had started listening to a lot of public radio. And that seemed, I connected with that medium in a pretty crazy way. What was, when you were in college and you were like, I'm going to become a journalism major on route to glamorous IT uh, employment. What like what kind of stuff were you into when you were in college? What led you towards it? Oh, I wanted to be like a cultural critic. I wanted to be like a Griel Marcus, Lester Bangs kind of music. Oh, okay. I thought that that's that... very, I like that you were very spe- like specific there. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. I was like, I was like, I know what I want to do. I want to be a very outspoken person with very firmly held opinions who, um, you know, touches brilliance occasionally. Were you writing about music? Were you playing music? I mean, I was playing music. I, was the music director at my college radio station. I have played music on and off for many years with people who have gone on to much greater success in music than I have. And I felt like writing was my strength and um, much more so than actually playing music. But then I realized like, oh, I don't hold any opinions quite that strongly. Also, my writing is not as strong as those people. And this is not, this is not my path. Whatever, mm. whatever my path is, it's not cultural criticism it's not music criticism it's not yep. playing music was that a like a piece of feedback you received or was that a form of self-feedback that was a form of self-feedback i'm also like a self-saboteur in a i was gonna say you've way. got like a cord wrapped around your thumb there that i'm worried that you're gonna cut off <laughs> we're only like two minutes into the interview i haven't even asked any hard questions yet I mean, we'll get there. We'll get there. um okay so you, you you're uh not gonna be a cultural critic you would like to do something in the general universe of public radio. Yeah, and it's weird. Um, you know the website Metafilter? Mm-hmm. They have that I recently sub- interviewed Matt Howie. Oh, really? From my other show, Stoner. Plug. I'll plug it. <laughs> plug it right here. Uh, <laughs> good work. Good Thank work. You. Matt Howie, I told Matt Howie that it's quite possible that he, of all of the things I've wasted time on the internet, I may have wasted the most time on Metafilter. <laughs> Right. Time. Yeah, I spent I mean, it was like the place where you could get everything and the conversation because there was a five dollar membership fee. Yeah. The conversation was like just sane enough. Yeah. I never it paid it, but I appreciate sometimes like I feel like it's like those kind of things like I'm not going to pay, but I appreciate you making everyone who doesn't pay be really quiet. Yeah, absolutely. So young Goldman is on is on the Metafilter. Right. And there's a subsection of Metafilter called Ask Metafilter where yeah. people ask questions. And I was so clueless. I just posted a question which was like, how do I get a job at NPR? Yeah. I have no idea what I'm doing. And the answer is just, you know, you do an internship. And I was I had a job. I had a career. Like I could have continued doing IT yeah. and lived comfortably. What kind of IT are we talking about here? So I worked for a company that does outsourced IT. So for small businesses that aren't big enough to have their own IT department, oh, okay. we're sitting in a room in Manhattan. If they have a problem, they call us. If the mm. problem's too big for them to solve on their own, we go there and fix it. For whatever reason, the 
market that we managed to infiltrate was art galleries. Like all the sort of major players were our clients. So um, I was constantly crawling under desks, trying not to knock over Liechtenstein um, sculptures and things like that. And I really didn't like it. The people we worked for were jerks Mm. and um, it wasn't fun. It wasn't rewarding. It was often very frustrating. It wasn't creative. It was just... I had a checklist of things to do whenever I found a certain problem and I would do that. And if I, those fixed it, that was great. If not, I'd kick it up to someone else who knew more than me. It was um, really boring. And every Sunday I would um, turn into an insufferable asshole because I didn't want to go back to work. Do you think that your work on Reply All, which is a show about the internet and often about the people who get stuck in their internet or something weird happens to them because of the internet... Do you think that these experiences you had, like fixing art galleries, IT, influenced this direction in your life? I think the biggest influence from that job is I have creative technical solutions now to problems that I encounter for the show. Like Mm. I find myself being able to diagnose things in a way that I couldn't have otherwise. So you post, um, how do I get a job at NPR? And people tell me, you know, do an internship. So... I had this job that could have been my career and I chose to take a like 100% pay cut to go be an intern at On the Media at WNYC. And um, I was working with a lot of people who I continue to work with today. PJ was a, pre- was a sort of contract employee at On the Media at the time. So when I took the internship, what I was told by the person who gave it to me was, just to be clear, this will not lead to a job in radio. So you have to do this because you really want to. And it was a series of sort of lucky breaks, I think, that that I managed to turn it into a full-time gig. Did did that give you pause when you were told that there would be no gig on on the other end? I I called my dad and said, hey, what should I do? And my dad was like, don't do it. It's a terrible mistake. Like You're just going to – you're like – you're not going to get paid. Yeah. Um, And what does it say about this industry – that you're telling the interns on the way in, there's no job for you. There's no job that doesn't even pay well for you on the other side of this. Like, <laughs> usually people be like, anything could happen. We can't guarantee you a job, but we won't completely rule it out. I just sort of thought to myself, like, if if that is true, yeah, will I regret doing this? And the answer is no. Like, yeah. I, there was no way I would have regretted doing it. I would have regretted not doing it. What were your initial experience of working on a uh, radio show like? I mean, working on On the Media is a very different, it's like very different kind of show. You know, yeah. I loved it. I thought it was unbelievable and it was like a dream come true. I couldn't believe that I got the opportunity to do it. Um, every day was like a total delight. I didn't mind that I had to be a mover three days a week in order to make pay my rent. Um, it was just like incredibly exciting to be around people who had ideas about things and opinions about things other than, you know, the best hard drive, the best RAM to install. Um, And my job was to pitch stories, find people to talk to, write interview questions, edit, all the things that basically I do now, all the things that it prepared me very capably for sort of where I went. What did you learn in that initial period about what would work as a, a story on the radio? I mean, it's different because I feel like what I do now is is narrative. And what we did at On The Media was uh, much more sort of 
analysis of current events. But I think the thing that I learned was it has to be surprising. There's a genre of story that we talk about it a lot at Reply All. We call uh, this is a thing that happened story. Yeah. And it's like, oh, a thing happened. And then we sort of trail off. Because we really want to talk about that particular thing, but we don't have any larger idea to apply to it. There's no contour to it. Yeah. There's nothing sort of grander woven into the thing that happened. The internet particularly, I think, creates things that are the first act of a story that have n- don't go anywhere. Uh, the, one, the one story that we get that people pitch us more than anything else is, I'm getting someone else's email. <laughs> and... I understand how that feels really weird. Yeah. But every time I see one of those, I think to myself, where does this go? What yeah. happens now? And nothing happens now. It's just you're getting someone else's email and you try to explain to them that. There's that um, there's that This American Life episode where they like all, everyone's parents like get to tell the things that they've been saying yes. that are, are great stories. And like all these people like trying to make this like elevated art and storytelling and then if you ask like a average person like what a good like a, what a good story would consist of it's just like a totally random episode of life i mean i'm totally guilty of that too Me i write too. down i write down things all the time where i'm like oh this is going to be so awesome and then i pitch it to our executive producer tim howard and he's like what and then what alex <laughs> and and then what so what what he says to me is what are your questions about this and then I start to panic. I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know. I don't know what my questions are. I just it's a thing that happened. Generally, when you're trying to tell a story, particularly a story that goes somewhere rather than not going somewhere, people do something or go somewhere or like do something to another person. And a lot of stories that take place with technology take place entirely with two people, sometimes who are anonymous, both sitting at a computer for a period of hours and doing things on a computer when you first started doing stories in that vein how did you deal with the challenge of computers being at the center of them so funny when we first started tldr which was the precursor to reply all we had all these ideas about how to deal with certain things to make them more dynamic like we were talking about doing when we had to read comments from a website because we knew we were going to be doing that a bunch yes PJ was like, what if we made it like a Greek chorus where like a bunch of people would be saying it at the same time to add this dynamism to this, to this, to people talking. Yeah. Or like, what if we filtered it so that it sounded like it was being sent through a phone or there was like, yeah. And, um, was this while you were working in the same space as radio lab? (laughs) That far from them. Uh, uh, you know, we could hear Sean Cole laughing in the distance. I think what the mistake that we were making is thinking that the internet is not real life. The yeah. internet is something that's separate. And it's not. The internet is just life now. And yep. even though some stories that involve the internet might take place solely with two people sitting at terminals typing away, you know, romance and violence and joy and sadness, all of those things can pass between two people from computers. So I feel like... It's more in the hands of whoever we're talking to, or it's more in our hands to get elicited from whoever we're talking to. I'm not so worried about um, the lack of movement in space when it yeah. comes to stories about the internet. What are the specific qualities you think of doing stories in this space? Like, what have you learned about trying to tell technology stories? 
I would say that the thing I've learned is that the actual technology of it's your enemy. Technology and the business, for the most part, are, mm. are not my friend. Yeah. I'm not interested in how companies make money and their surprise success stories. I'm not interested in how things work, unless it has some sort of larger implication on the way that people communicate. And we do stories about technology. We've been talking for months on about how to do a compelling story about net neutrality, which seems very important and still haven't quite cracked that nut. Yeah. But it's more about the way that technology impacts people than it is about the technology itself. Technology itself is boring. The only time it's interesting is when it has some impact on a person's life. And that can be as simple as like technology that allows you to skip ads on your on your DVR or as profound as like people using Facebook to foment revolution in Guatemala. I'm going to pause things here briefly to give you a word from our sponsor, Squarespace. Uh, when you are ready to start a new business, you should make it stand out with a Squarespace website. I know this because I do this myself. I make another podcast. It's called Stoner. That podcast I make on a Squarespace website. Why do I do it? Um, I really like the templates they have. Uh, it makes a unique look. So it does not look cookie cutter. It showcases your work and you're not putting a ton of time into it and you're not constantly needing to customize each feature because it works great on the phone. Uh, you don't need to patch it or upgrade it. They've got extensions. They allow you to bind domains. Uh, this is all stuff that's going to help you out if you're trying to make a website. Um, they've got great customer support if you need it. So if you have an idea, I encourage you to make it a reality with Squarespace. You can go to squarespace.com for a free trial. If you use offer code LONGFORM, you get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, squarespace.com slash LONGFORM. Here I am back with Alex Goldman. When I interview mostly magazine journalists on this show, and if I were to describe tech journalism, most of it breaks down into being either business or science writing. And then there's this like totally like what you're doing couldn't have less to do with those things and is like a different genre entirely. What what do you look for in a story when you're evaluating one of these things that is coming in in that raw and then what form? What, what are you looking for in the pitch meetings? What are we looking for? We're looking for a question that we feel like we can answer. Hmm. And it has to be a question that interests us. And our interest is not in, like I said, business or technology. Our interest is in like, a lot of times it's how do things work? We do stories about how fishing works and yeah. how that kind of stuff works. But we always sort of, we always couch it in like, we're going to try and trick our boss. We're going to try and hack our boss. We're going to try and yeah. do this or that. You know, we did a story not too long ago about a, a company. There was a, an address in New Jersey where packages kept getting sent yes um, and it turns out that it's a reshipper that ships to eastern europe and hackers hack ebay accounts get stuff shipped to this place and since it's an intermediary no one knows where the packages are actually going everybody just thought that there was some address in new jersey where everybody was getting packages sent and it was just stealing packages from people it's interesting to know how that scam works but the real anchor of that story was 
the young woman who we ended up talking to for the story, her name was Brina. She was worked at Subway for six months to buy an Apple Watch, and then it got stolen when she tried to sell it online by some, you know, Eastern European hacker. I just think that, like, it just has to touch someone in a way that is frustrating or interesting. And it has to surprise me. Anytime I'm doing a story and the thing that happens is the thing that I expect to happen, I get super bored and I don't want to I don't want to continue. If I go into an interview and I think I know the how the person's going to answer and I do, generally that's a story that stalls at that point. A lot of the times when I'm listening to reply all, I'm like, wow, if they didn't have like a producer and like a bunch of free time, like these aren't things that you can just like poke lightly and get to the bottom of. In that one in New Jersey, Right. Like you get there and the woman's like, I don't know, we just ship goods to like former Soviet republics. What do you want from me? You know? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think of myself as I think I've always been curious yeah. to a fault. And I'm one of those people who will get lost on the Internet for hours looking into stuff. Yeah. And somehow through some great twist of fate, I've managed to make getting lost in my curiosity my job. Yeah. So now I can just indulge that weird whim and figure stuff out. And I have the time and resources to do it. And it's heaven. It's the best. Are you getting better at it? Yes and no. Basically what I'm doing is I'm building a tool set. Like I have a, I have a standard, you know, like a lockpick has a standard set of tools that he constantly, he like yep. tries the easy ones first. And then as it gets more involved, he'll pull out. I'm making this up because I don't know how locksmiths do this. <laughs> but I assume they have ones where if it's an easy lock, they just use a credit card. And yep. then as it gets harder, they pull out specialized tools. I feel like I now have a checklist that I can go down and I can run all my, the stuff that I've done in the past against scams or sort of bad behavior. And generally it bears fruit. So, yes, in that sense, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. How do you manage yourself as a character on the show, Reply All? Like that Longmont Potion Castle episode talks about you experiencing like some pretty rough times in college and, and being hospitalized. And then there'll be like an episode like the episode where um, PJ did acid, where it's kind of like about his like, drug history and like you got you know it's kind of like uh the characters are in the office doing stuff kind of mm -hmm. um i guess i'm wondering like how do you decide when you have a story how the alex goldman and pj vote characters are going to be like what their relationship to that story is going to be in the episode well like you could do a micro dosing story that didn't have one of the two of you in it, or you can do one that's like a guinea pig story. I'm curious about that decision. I mean, with that specific story, PJ had been working on many different iterations of it. At first, it was just about the Tripsit website, and he talked to the people there and didn't find the narrative compelling enough to squeeze out an entire story. But the one thing in his conversation with the guy who, who volunteered for Tripsit, which was a guy who called himself Reality... Um, <laughs> He talked about how doing LSD made his life better and made him more interesting and blah, blah, blah. And then he started looking into information about yeah about uh, LSD. And he spoke to this guy who said, you know, I might, I've been microdosing for years and it's made my life better. It's made me generally more aware and more perceptive and more receptive. And again, didn't quite become a story. 
And PJ did a talk about it, which he called Drive Till We Find an Exit. And I think that's a great allegory for what we try to do sometimes. We sometimes will have a story that doesn't feel like a story. And then if PJ suddenly puts himself in it, it becomes a story. And honestly, I think that we are inextricably part of our show a lot of times. Yeah. A lot of our process ends up in the show. You know, how we find out information, um, our frustrations, our excitement. And I mean, the sort of standard setup of a reply all story is Alex and PJ are these two guys who host a podcast. They go into the studio. One of them has been reporting a story. The other one is going to learn what happens in that story. And by the way, not rehearsed. We have a very, very convoluted system by which we keep stories from one another until we go into the studio. Um, when we do story meetings, one of us has to leave the room sometimes. We use these sort of shorthand slugs on our board so that the other person only knows the barest outline of what the story is about. PJ has been working on a story for months called Phone Calls. And until a couple weeks ago, I just knew that it was about phone calls. I did a big story about call center scams, which for quite a while, PJ just knew as iCloud because that's how it was written on the board. What's the, like, why, why, uh, why so secret? Because there's nothing that sounds less honest than people acting on the radio. And we're not good actors. We're not convincing actors. And when you walk in, you know, and it's been X many months, you've been working on this story about a scammer, uh, like a guy who does a tech support scam from India. And you're telling PJ about it. That improvisation, if it doesn't come off, you've missed this like once uh, opportunity you only get once, which is when you're telling about it the first time. W what's important in that two minute improv that can only happen one time? Well, I, I think that improv might be overstated. Or a bit. two hours. <laughs> what, what happens is um, before we do it, I will sketch out what the sort of f information flow, mm. what the important beats are to hit with Tim Howard, our executive producer. And then when we go into the studio, he will sit in and a lot of times we'll interject if he feels like something needs to be hit. And the other thing that we do is just sort of set the tone. Like, you know, we can be pretty jocular, but we will say <laughs> beforehand, like, this is not a funny story. So take off your goofy hat <laughs> and don't act crazy. Like, before you know what's going on, don't be too nuts because this isn't going to be a story that's going to lend itself to that kind of humor. Where did, like... These processes you have, I remember when the show came out, wasn't that long ago, three years ago, two years ago? Yeah, two, almost three. Th almost three years ago. I'm assuming you didn't have all of these processes in place at some point. How did you develop the methodology by which you make these episodes? Is it adapted from how some other show does it? Well, you know, when we first started, if you listen to the early episodes, most of them are just one of us reporting. Tim Howard came from Radiolab. Yeah. Where he worked with Jad and Robert, who did a thing they called the brain dump. And that's like, they go into a studio and the one tells the other. And that's what they build their stories around. And um, the idea initially felt like too chaotic. Like there wasn't enough control in not writing our stories. You know, writing them felt much more comfortable to both of us, I think, to both me and PJ. And... Tim basically said, you know, your strength is your relationship. And in the office, it is very fun to be around you because you're constantly bickering and like you guys think very differently. So we started trying to do things that way. And honestly, 
I would say that it it it's its own form of editing in a way. It's like on mic editing because we will sit down and start to argue back and forth or I will tell a story and PJ will ask questions that I don't have an answer to that will inform my reporting because a lot of times we do two or three of them. We'll do one when I first when I've done like my first preliminary interviews and I have a question that I haven't answered and then I'll go answer it and we'll do the follow up. And in that first one, PJ will often suggest things or say, what about X? Why aren't you talking to Y? And I'll say, oh, I don't know. That's a great idea. So it's a way to get the idea out and preserve our relationship on mic, but still kind of direct the story in a way. And sometimes they take turns because of conversations we've had that they wouldn't have otherwise. So if I read you correctly, then the relationship between the two of you is pretty central to the tone of the show. Yeah, I'd say so. Where where did that relationship start? The last time we heard you guys were um, interns together at On The Media. Who was the first person who said you should do a show together? <laughs> so we were both, I think, the youngest people there. Youngest in terms of like the newest employees. Um, Least likely to get a job. Yeah, pretty much. PJ had just come off an internship at This American Life and he was doing, he was, he was a per diem. I had just come from years of IT. And I think both of us felt like we were little kids wearing trench coats to try and look like adults. And so we naturally kind of developed a friendship. And then we sort of realized that in spite of incredible differences in our personalities, like we both had the same, you know, we both had similar tastes. Mm. And... We also like kind of protected one another. PJ is kind of, I don't know. I don't think he'll mind me saying this. PJ is a little absent-minded. He's not like a real T-crosser and I-daughter. I am. So I could help him, you know, <laughs> take care of those things. I am kind of impulsive and he is much more calculated. And so he would kind of be like, all right, chill out. <laughs> Just like play the long game, which was very helpful. So we kind of saved each other's butts a little bit in terms of like pulling off the little kid in trench coat act and like just started enjoying each other's company. And it's funny because we still have G chats of us being very formal, being like, excuse me, sir, can you please email me the clip of MSNBC? Um, but it very quickly devolved into sort of the childish behavior that we engage in now. And then... The way that TLDR came about, which is sort of like the baby version of Reply All, is that WNYC did a content contest. They said, hey, anybody in the company, it doesn't matter where you work. It doesn't matter if you work in as a producer or you work in membership or whatever. Everybody can pitch a podcast and the best one will be made into a show. The best one was Anna Sales, Death, Sex, and Money. <laughs> um, and couple other shows got like piloted and I don't know if they're still going and ours was not one of the ones that ended up winning. You weren't even in the top three it sounds like. No we were in I think the top five and then our boss at On The Media said hey if you guys just work late and sort of work around the edges to make this thing you can do it so long as you're also writing blog posts for our website. Because the part of the thing at the time was they really wanted to increase the amount of traffic that was coming to the On The Media website in the hopes that they would get some of those 
people as on the media listeners. So they were like, you guys want to make this podcast. We want to increase the traffic. Yeah. Start a blog, make your podcast on the side. And also, Alex, you have to continue making on the media and you can do it. So knowing what you know now about how much work it takes to produce the shows that you produce, Mm -hmm. what were you thinking about how much work it was going to be to do this TLDR show in addition to the multiple other obligations that you had at that point? I knew it was going to be a lot of work, but also no one was really paying attention. Yeah. No one was watching. Yeah. So we could kind of just do whatever we wanted. We we had time to make the show. If it wasn't ready one week, we didn't have to put it out. You were doing them every week at that point? We were for the most part, but we missed a lot. What was it like? Actually, I'm, I'm interested both in that period and the very early period when you jumped to Gimlet and we're doing the first few shows there, which we're getting mm-hmm. a pretty good amount of attention, as I recall. Like it was, it was on the heels of startup, and so there was a lot of people listening right from the get-go right. there. Like, tell me about the early experiences you had trying to put together and get shows out on any kind of a deadline. Well, at TLDR, it was just me and PJ. There's no one else. We yeah. were editing each other, mostly doing paper edits, meaning we would just write out our entire script, and then the person would go through and mark it. And PJ has always been a better writer than me. And um, I'm not, I'm willing to admit that into a microphone. He's just like, he's got an incredible ear for like the rhythm of language. He like naturally speaks in allegory. It's the craziest thing. He just has this like incredible facility with language and ideas and managing to express ideas in like a really eloquent way. So his editorship was invaluable on that show. And I was more like, I'm I'm more of a reporter. I'm like good at gathering information and laying that information out, not necessarily in a way that makes a lot of sense. But so for the two of us, it was like, you know, a lot of late nights, but it was so much fun. We were having so much fun. And were people listening to those early shows? It's tough to say because yeah. we were sending it down the on the media feed as well. Uh... So it's unclear exactly how many people were listening because we knew that they were getting X amount of downloads. I think they were getting 70. They were like averaging around 70,000 downloads. But that's because, you know, people's podcasts automatically download and people who subscribe to On The Media also got TLDR. I do remember there were a lot of one-star reviews for On The Media at the time because people were not super happy about getting those those episodes. <laughs> and we also had our own pri- a separate feed, which I think by the time we left had about 15,000. So... It was a decent amount, but it wasn't like, you know, we weren't serial or anything. And then we started Reply All at Gimlet, and we happened to air our first, I think, four or five episodes during the original run of Serial. Like, there could not have been a better time to start a podcast, and it was totally serendipity, and we were incredibly lucky. And we also had Startup, which was Alex Bloomberg's podcast touting us as the first show from the podcast company that startup was about. That was kind of the first period where I realized also that you could roll one audience off into somewhere else. Like before Reply All, before the first season of Serial, it wasn't totally clear that you could take one big audience of people and that and get them to like go 
somewhere else and check out your next thing or check out something else that was from the same company. And it's like a powerful idea. And now it's a power you have to roll audiences into other shows that are out there. Yeah. I honestly think that it's the, it is the only way that I have found that is a surefire method to gain listenership. Yeah. I mean, our, our audience knock on wood continues to go up and like slowly over time. But the moments that we've had real actual growth were when Shruti's story, The Cathedral, appeared on Radiolab. PJ's story, Ship to Timbuktu, appeared on This American Life. The the uh, recommendation of other shows is the most powerful driver of audience. I mean, it's almost like not everyone listens to podcasts and even people within podcasts like only want the most vetted possible recommendations right i mean we've tried a bunch of different things you know we've tried putting like little ads for game for other shows on our network up top which are like hey you know yeah check this out but the thing we found really works is just saying this is a good show we like it yeah we're going to play you some of it and certain subset of our listeners get mad that we put anything that's not our show down our feed but it always helps immensely Tell me about, I think there's a lot of people out there who'd like to start a show, have ideas, maybe could put together an episode, a pilot, a little run of four or five. How many shows a year does Reply All do right now? 37, I think. Okay. 35. So when you start taking everything you've talked about, keeping all of these secrets from each other and coming in and improvising them and writing scripts, all this stuff, and then you scale it by 37 times a year. How does that change the equation on what you're doing? What what is it the challenge of getting out that many episodes and does it make you think about does this story fit into our 137th of the year time budget and those kind of concerns? What are the challenges? The challenges are seeing your family. Um and I'm dead serious about that. It's it's the most complex thing in my life right now is figuring out how to see, how to make time for my family and my job. The challenges are when and where to apply the very different but all very valuable brains of people on our show. I think that everybody on the show has special skills. Yeah. And it's like a very careful application of those skills. And having a person on the show who's smart enough to know to apply all those skills at the right time in the right place. Um, Fia Benin tends to be the person on our show who does that. Um, she's the person who says, all right, this person's working on this. This person's working on that. Here's our calendar. Here are the stories that are in progress. Here's what we need to be focusing on. And it would fall apart without her. Basically, it's like we're a bunch of people who I think have very, very niche talents. And it takes an incredible amount of effort to apply those talents properly in a way that produces a show that we're proud of. Did in the early days, did you ever feel like came up short and put something out on deadline that you wished that you had spent longer on? I still occasionally do. And I think that part of it is, I think honestly, a thing that we do is we, we rush out some stories in order to protect other stories. Yeah. Like, you know, I worked on that call center scam story for six months And it wasn't the only story that I worked on. I did other stuff. But in order to protect that, we had to push other stuff up in the the queue a couple times. 
or, you know, invent something out of whole cloth, which, you know, we put out in a week. And I mean, we're actually a pretty small team. There's only six of us. Yeah. So it's always tight. We're, we're always right down to the deadline. Do you feel like as you've gone from that two to six, each time you add someone, do you have the belief that like, oh, now it'll be easier? Yes. And it never gets easier or it hasn't yet. And I think it hasn't gotten easier because our ambition has scaled up with the number of people who've gone to come to the show. Yeah. And I'm so proud of the work that we've done in the past year or two years as we've added those people and everyone that we've, that we've added to the show, like everyone who works with us right now is so talented and I can't believe that I get to work with them. Mm. It is just incredible. I, I'd like to talk about you. You described the basic prompt uh, of an episode being like a question we want to answer. Mm-hmm. And in the case of that Indian tech support scam, so it's like a two-part episode. Okay. The first part, you're like, what is the deal with this support scam? And you kind of go through like a series of like investigations and you're like, okay, it's this company. These are the guys. Like, And then in the second part of the episode, you kind of like reboot. Same question, like we're going to go there and find out what's really happening there. And it seems like when you get to India, what you found in India was kind of like, I wouldn't call it like a dud, but it wasn't like a bombshell revelation. It was kind of like, hey, we do not want to talk about this, you know? Like whenever someone's making a documentary and something will break amazingly in their favor, I'll be like, oh my God, can you believe it? They were there with the cameras and then that happened. And the second part of that India was like, to me, like the like reverse of that where it was like nothing particularly like profound happened other than you got like pretty stonewalled by them. So what do you do in these situations when you're trying to answer a question and like it doesn't totally get answered? That's a great question. Because I assume if you have to ship, if you're shipping 37 a year, you're not like throwing them away when they don't like produce a neat resolution. Sometimes yes, sometimes oh, yeah. no. I mean, there we probably kill about half or more of the stories that we do. Wow. So that means you're starting on over 60 stories a year. Yeah, and I mean, a lot a lot of those, it's like we do one interview and we say, okay, this isn't as interesting yeah. as we thought. We're just going to put this down. That's like more than an idea a week. Are you guys just like rapid firing, throwing out ideas every week? I try to. I yeah. mean, I, we've been on a summer break. And I have a document on my computer with, I think, nine stories that I've come up with that I want to invest, that I want to look into now when we go back. Do you have like a methodology for like, oh, I want to think of some story ideas. This is what I do. I go on the internet and do this. To some degree, as the show has attracted more listeners, um, a lot of great stories come from listeners where they say, I have a question or I have this problem. This unique thing has happened to me. Can you help me with it? Yeah. Um, one of many brilliant innovations that PJ has come up with for the show is he came up with this idea of super tech support, which is like a problem that is bigger than the person who is contacting us, not easily solvable. And we end up getting a lot of questions that are just regular tech support. Like, Hey, I can't delete my MySpace account. But then we have, we get some that are, that like feel to me bigger and send us down a rabbit hole. I mean, that's what happened with that story about, the shipping place in New Jersey. And those are stories that I tend to be interested in because they have some sort of technical problem that I can fix. <laughs> and 
I just keep my eyes peeled for stories that feel like maybe there's some unexplored component to it where people are focusing on a thing that happened. You know, this is a thing that happened story yeah. where I say to myself, well, people aren't asking a question that I have about this. Right. Um, you asked about India, and I don't know that if I, I answered that question. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't mean to say something insulting, like you didn't find anything, but like anytime there's a, a mystery, there's a chance that you either won't solve it or that you will solve it in a way that's like, well, this is the truth, but it's like, ah, that wasn't the most satisfying end beat. H- how do you deal with that in your stories? Well, you know, my, my question in the first episode was who, how does this scam work? Yeah. And my question in the second episode was, who is this guy Kamal who I've been talking to? Who right. is he really? Yeah. Like what is, by my understanding, we're friends. Yeah. I want to go meet a friend. Right. And talk to him. Learn more about him. Learn more about this company that, right. I'm, that I'm talking to. And when I got there, I realized, oh, Kamal is not a friend. Kamal yeah. is not someone who um, wants to have anything to do with me. Yeah. So. For pretty good reason. Like, the reason Kamal is not your friend is because, like, you could get Kamal in pretty big trouble. Right. But he also invited me to India. Yes. So I figured I had to give it a shot. Right. I mean, the story that could have happened in India sounds amazing. Like, I can imagine like he shows you around and you build like a relationship and he like gives away the like inner secrets and workings of Indian tech support scam. That's like the best, best case scenario. Right. Mm -hmm. And then what really happened is he's kind of like, why are you doing this story? Leave me alone. Like, what do you do in a situation like that? Kind of make the best of it. Yeah. The best moments and you try and put out something compelling. I feel pretty good about the way the episode turned out. I would have liked to have gone there and had some blistering revelation. Yeah. Or like, so my dream tape was to go to the call center and sit down and make a call. Just make a call and be like, hi, I'm with so-and-so tech support. How's it going? Blah, blah, yeah. blah. I wanted to like go in there and just sit down and be behind the phone, doing the same thing that was done to me. Right. Of course not, you know, scam people, but just right. sort of like, get in there and and have that feeling. Part of what seemed like difficult in like your ability to get in that seat was that like you both were kind of like finger wagging them about being scammers and wanting to be like in the inner scammer circle. Did you consider um, sort of making them immune or anonymous in exchange for greater access to what they were doing? I think that they thought that I was trying to blackmail them. Ah. I think that at the point I came to India, they thought I was either trying to blackmail them or trying to get in on their business, like trying to become part of it. See, I thought that they thought you were doing a like, look how bad these like call centers are and they exploit the workers or something like that. Well, you know, I talked to a journalist who works in South America and he said to me, you know, in my experience doing international reporting a lot of times people who say they're journalists are people who collect information on someone and then won't publish it if they're paid yeah and so you spent the whole time telling them you're a journalist i think they thought that you were just trying to get money out of them right and i mean even in the conversation he says what do you want from me because if you want money you're not going to get anything yeah i don't think they knew what to make of me because i just was such a gormless doofus the whole time I was just like genuinely curious and I kept being very upfront with my curiosity and then once we got there we were both playing each other a little bit they were trying to 
feel me out and figure out what I wanted. And I was trying to feel them out and get more information. Right. And we were both, we were both not saying exactly what we wanted to say. Right. So for you, this project that you've been doing now for over three years, you've gone from an IT worker to a, a well-known podcaster. The show is kind of in the pop cultural consciousness now. A lot of people listen. How is it year three different than it was year one for you personally? Mostly in good ways. I feel like we are constantly trying to outdo ourselves. We're constantly trying to figure out new ways to break the format of the show, to get weirder, to challenge ourselves and to have fun. And like, there's no way that we would have been able to do acid or go to India pretty much anywhere else. Do you feel a sense of competition at any level? Like first within the show, you know, you have your pieces, PJ has pieces, other people on the show now are bringing in pieces, you know, only a certain number of pieces break out. And then even within the company, Gimlet has a roster of shows. Some shows make it, some shows don't make it. And then even above the Gimlet level, there's all these competing networks now and clearly other people would love to put out a show that claimed the same audience as yours. How do you think about the show and the constellation of other products that are out there? Yes, I feel competition, mostly with my coworkers. Yeah. I just want to make something that's mind-blowing and have my coworkers be like, oh, shit, that's awesome. Yeah, like how does it feel when PJ, you're in the, the dark for months and months and months, and PJ wheels something out and you're like, holy shit, that's like really, really good. How does that feel to have not been involved in it? Sometimes frustrating. And usually I'm involved toward the end, you know, I'm involved in the editing process. But like I said, PJ's the editor. He's the brain. He's like, him and Tim are the real narrative brain of the show. Yeah. And truthy, I would say. And so, yeah, it's, uh, I can feel, I feel jealous sometimes. And it's always been that way. We've always worked on stories separately, and I've always felt jealous when he got some great idea. But generally, I hope it's not a bad jealousy. It's more like I'm just like, well, I got I to gotta one-up him. I got to do something crazier. I've got to find something better. And I feel like, like I said, PJ is like a great idea person. Part of his brilliance is that he can look at a story that I think is totally picked over and find something that I just didn't know to look for. And like, that is the muscle that I most want to develop. <laughs> and that will, that will keep me in competition for years. Nothing more so than technology brings up the idea of generation gap and assumptions that people at different ages are really different than each other. Now that you've been doing the show three years, there's a probably an intern class every year of <laughs> people at Gimlet who are, you know, from a different technological generation do you think about concerns like that at all? Or like, do you, do you feel like you're getting old in terms of technology? I feel like I was old by the time this show started. Yeah. I mean, there are like entire cultures that I don't understand. I don't understand the world of YouTube very well. And you don't even have to be particularly young to get into that. Like, I'm also a white heterosexual man. Yes. There are a lot of spaces on the internet that I don't get or that, I'm not particularly well-versed in. That is a weakness. That is something that we're constantly looking for ways to address and look into. Yeah. And in some ways, that's really frustrating to me that we're not telling 
stories that like I may not get just because of who I am and how old I am and where I'm from. But in some ways, it's really exciting to me because all we need to do is find the right contributors and then we can tell those stories. And it like opens up a whole new avenue of storytelling. That's a very exciting prospect to me. How did you do? Like, how do you do that? How do you? What is the process by which you bring someone new into the show? Because I've seen more and more shows where that aren't a Alex or a PJ show. So how does someone else end up making a, an episode for Reply All? Generally, they just pitch us a story, and we tend to have a pretty high bar for outside pitches because it's much harder to work with those people. We know each other's rhythms. We know. Right. We know how to manage one another to some degree. Like I said, Fia is great at managing us. Suddenly you're throwing in this like sort of unknown quantity. Maybe the person's very difficult to work with. Maybe the person, maybe the tape they have isn't what we need. And so like we're coming, usually coming in at some point during the process, like they've already started producing and then we're coming in and saying, here's what we want to know. That's pretty tough, but I love those stories. I love stories that aren't by us. I love stories that aren't by me and PJ. I love stories that are by Fia and Damiano and Truthy. I would wish Tim would get in front of a microphone now and again. I I don't like, I'm tired of my dumb voice. I want to hear other people. I want to hear other, what other people have to say. I am not the authority on the internet. I'm not an expert on particularly anything except stuff that I like. So yeah, it's really important to me to get other people on the show. Thank you very much, Alex Goldman. Thanks, man. And that is the end of part one of Longform's interview with Reply All. Part two with PJ Vote should already be in your feed. Go listen to it right now. Thank you very much to Alex Goldman for this interview. Uh, thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Thank you to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. Thank you to our intern, Angela Velez. Our amazing sponsors, Squarespace and MailChimp. Uh, yeah, just go look in your feed for part two right now. Do it. Just plow right into it. Uh, this show is brought to you by Longform and The Atavist and comes out every Wednesday. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.